Well, we're kicking off this brand new message series where over the next six weeks, we're going to take a look at the last book in the Bible called Revelation. Now, there are 22 chapters in Revelation, about 404 verses. And so unless we were going to have a series that lasted six to nine months on Revelation, we're not going to be able to get to every single chapter and every single verse. But our goal in the next month is to give everyone an understanding of the main thoughts, the main messages, the main themes of the book. And I think as we've organized that, we've done a good job over the next six weeks at hitting those. Uh, I mentioned last week that having a teaching series on Revelation is something that over my time as pastor here has been asked of me many times, probably the singular topic that's been asked about the most. And I think as I thought about my own interest in Revelation, there's a couple reasons for that. And maybe some of these might resonate with you. One of the reasons I think people are interested is that they're curious about the meaning. Depending on your knowledge going into today about Revelation, you may know that some people feel, maybe you have thought, that there are some mysteries contained in this book about the end of the world and about Christ's return, and that it would be fun to unlock these mysteries that you know the average person doesn't know or doesn't realize. So there's this curiosity about the meaning. And then the other reason why I think people appreciate a teaching series on Revelation or a Bible class is because it's very easy to get overwhelmed by the content. It doesn't take long if you have attempted to read through Revelation to start to get confused by exactly what things mean and what God is trying to relay. And I totally get that. And in fact, I want you to know something about the Bible, that there are some parts of scripture that just are easier to understand than other parts. Revelation is one of the more difficult books to understand when you read it for the first time. In fact, I think I can say this, but if you've ever read Revelation and thought, you know what, this book is kind of weird, I totally get that too. It's a book that it writes about lakes of fire and dragons, which dragons don't exist, and demon-possessed beasts. In chapter 5, it talks about Jesus, and he's pictured like this, a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. It gets weirder. In chapter 9, the writer writes about what he sees, and he in his words, in his writing, pictures or illustrates this. A group of locusts that have the, the power of a scorpion, and they have human faces with crowns on the head of these locusts. And then he writes, and when you see them, when I saw them, it looked as if they were horses lined up for battle. Yeah, weird. Chapter 17 
the writer depicts this scene, a woman who, to his eyes, he could tell it was a prostitute or a harlot sitting on top of a one beast with seven heads and 10 horns. And he writes about seeing this, this prostitute holding a cup filled with abominable things. Now, if you are snooping in your child's journal and you saw in there drawings of things like these, you'd probably start to wonder, is my child okay? Because it is a little weird. But this is in the Bible. Why? What is God trying to get across? And if he is trying to get something across, why doesn't he just say it like it is? Why, does, why all this imagery? Why these weird drawings and these weird figures? Well, my hope in today's message is to just lay the foundation to give you the big picture for the rest of the series. And so one caveat I want to share with you is that my message today is probably unlike almost any other sermon I've given before, and it's for this reason. I'm going to be, at least for the first three quarters of this message, more of like a Bible class teacher who's going to give you an overview of what's in Revelation and why it's written that way. And then in the last quarter, you're going to see, you know, me get excited because I do have a little bit of a sermon at the end where I get to share some good news with you. But I didn't think there was any other better way to start this message or this series by just helping everyone get on the same page with this this book that there are so many questions about, and yet when we take the time to dig into it, it's not as confusing as we might think. So first question, take notes if you need to. Who wrote Revelation? Let's go to Revelation chapter one. It says this, the revelation, interestingly, I'm going to stop there for a moment. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. You hear the English word apocalypse, don't you? Which is a revealing, especially in regards to the end of the world. The revelation, the apocalypse from Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show his servants, that would be people, what must soon take place. He, God, made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So God gave a message to Jesus, who gave a message to an angel, and that angel came to John, who testifies to everything he saw. This is the same John as in one of the 12 disciples. It's the same John as in Peter, James, and John. It's the the same John who wrote the gospel of John and often calls himself the, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, who did John write this to? Let's skip ahead to verse four of chapter one. John, he's putting his name as the the writer to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you. He greets them and so on and so forth. And so there were seven churches in what we know today as Turkey. You'll see a little map of them right here. The original audience for this vision and this letter, this book were seven churches in Turkey. And if you read chapters two and three, you're going to see that 
God had a special message for each one of these churches because each one of these churches struggled with something different than the others. And there's so much encouragement and direction for us 2,000 years later in those seven letters and really in the entire letter. And so the original context was the seven churches in about 90 to 95 AD. But 2,000 years later, as long as we keep the context of who it was originally written to, there is so much hope and encouragement and direction for us as well. So how is Revelation organized or written? Let's talk about the structure of Revelation. First thing to recognize, because otherwise it'll throw you off if you read it from beginning to end, this is not chronological. So it's not one continuous story or historical account from beginning to end. Instead, I would call it, it's more cyclical. And so it will tell a story about the end of the world, and then it'll stop, and it'll start over and tell another account of the end of the world from a different angle or a different perspective. If you're right here in the room, and we'll make these available online as well, if you look to your left or to your right, or maybe it's in your lap, we put together a, a little outline of Revelation that I think can really help with this. So how is it organized? What's the structure of Revelation? There are seven different visions in the book of Revelation, each one is continuous to itself or contained by itself. Each one, generally speaking, is the topic of what happens to the church, God's people, after the resurrection of Jesus and up until the return of Jesus on the last day. Each one is about that topic. So if they're all about that, you can understand why there's gonna be some repeat as you read through the book of Revelation. One thing on the bottom here is an understanding that as you go from chapter one all the way to chapter 22, you do recognize that there is increasingly a stronger and stronger focus on Jesus' return. So here's the big question. Why is it written this way? Why did God choose to teach in this way to confuse us? No. Let's talk a little bit about the genre of revelation. We'd call it apocalyptic scripture, which all that means is scripture that speaks of the future and oftentimes the end of the world. Did you know that Revelation is not the only place in the Bible where there is this genre of apocalyptic scripture. A couple other books in the Old Testament have parts of them that are apocalyptic. I think of Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah. But again, why? And what are, some, what are some tenets? What are some characteristics of apocalyptic scripture? Well, first of all, when you read this type of scripture, People are often represented by animals. That's one thing that you, you kind of come to recognize. Historical events are represented by natural disasters or other phenomenon. And colors and numbers are symbolic. Why? 
Why would Jesus, why would God not just tell us like it is, tell, tell us things in clear, understandable language? Why all of these pictures? Well, it's good to understand this about apocalyptic scripture. The intent is to do more than just inform the mind. Its purpose and the reason it's written in the way that it is, with a harlot on a beast with seven heads and a cup with abomination. I don't know what that looks like, but abomination inside the cup. Its purpose is to stir the emotions and to touch the heart. There are other types of writing that does this. Poetry does this. Country music does this. <laughs> Song lyrics. And in order at times to stir the emotions and to touch the heart, you have to take people on a journey, right? And in fact, in the Psalms, which are essentially songs or poetry, we find some of this type of imagery. It may not be apocalyptic, but it takes you on a journey. For instance, this is just one verse of hundreds I could have picked, but in Psalm 91, it's written, the psalmist writes, God will cover you with his feathers and under his wings, you will find refuge. Now, just think for a moment, and this might be you watching online. If you've never read any portion of the Bible before and know nothing about God, and the first verse you read about God in the Bible is this one, what are you thinking about God? Is he a bird? Does he have feathers? And is he going to cover me when I'm scared? But you know why it was written this way. Because I'm just instead of saying, you know what, God's going to be there. He takes you on a journey. He stirs the heart and moves the emotions. You know what? When you're nervous, when you're scared, God is like a mama bird who comes to the nest and covers her babies with her feathers. That's why it's written this way. So that we're taken on a journey and So the writer doesn't just write about the devil and demons and the end of the world. The writer writes about lakes of fire and so many demon-possessed beasts. He doesn't just talk about heaven or Jesus or the word of God. He writes about a sword and streets of gold and a lamb who was slain. So how do we know what these symbols, what these words represent. Well, especially if you've never read Revelation before, there's some good news for you. First of all, one way we know is that sometimes the symbols are explained by John, the writer. So like today, we're going to go through a few verses in chapter one, and we're going to hear about seven golden lampstands. And then later in verse 20, after he shares about the lampstands, John literally writes as God shares with him that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And this happens over and over again. Sometimes right in the chapter, right in the verses, 
John, through God's direction, shares exactly what it is. Well, there's another way that we can know. Sometimes other parts of scripture will help us understand. And so one of the things that really got blazed on my heart and mind this week as I studied for part one is that the more a person understands the rest of scripture, the more a person will understand Revelation. So for instance, we know that Jesus is the lamb without John identifying it because all throughout scripture, Jesus is identified as a lamb. Or we know that the color white often denotes holiness or purity because it's not just in revelation that that's used. It's used in other parts of scripture. So a person who is a student of other parts of the Bible will have a leg up on understanding some of the symbolism found in Revelation. And then finally, this. Sometimes we just aren't sure. And I want you to know that's okay. Here's what I know without a shadow of a doubt. You can read through Revelation with a little bit of direction through this series and come away with so much encouragement and so much direction, even if you don't know every little symbolism found in the book. And in fact, knowing every little detail wasn't the point anyway. Here's what I mean. I've been reading through a commentary written by a professor that taught at the same seminary that I, I went to, and his name's Sigbert Becker. And this little gem from the introduction really resonated with me, and I wanted to share it with you. He wrote, we will have learned how to deal with this book when we've learned to read the apocalypse, Revelation, the way we read the parables. Now, what does that mean? A parable was a story Jesus would share to teach something spiritual. And when people go off on the deep end with parables is when they dig into it and they try to figure out what does this mean and what does that mean and trying to find meaning in every little detail. But Jesus taught parables to point people to one main point. And people get distracted when they're trying to find meaning in every little part. And what Professor Becker is saying is the same thing is true with Revelation. There is a main message. And yes, there's lots in here. You may not understand every little detail. That's okay, because you're going to still understand the main message, especially, especially if you stick with us for the next six weeks. What is the main message? What's the purpose of Revelation? Well, you need to know that it was written during a time of great persecution. 90s AD was during the reign of an emperor in Rome called Domitian. You've heard of Nero. He was a bad guy. Domitian, history tells us, was worse for Christians. This was a season where people who professed faith in Christ were dragged from their homes and not just murdered, but were tortured and killed, whether that by being set on fire, being fed to lions, beheaded, crucified. Families were separated. 
because of their, their confession of Jesus as Savior. And if I could, for just an aside, for a moment, I know that many in Christendom, especially in the United States, thinks or feels maybe that the events of the last year or so in some ways have been an attack on Christianity or that there's a persecution going on there. And I understand what you're saying. We need some perspective. We have it pretty good. There was no one here threatening you that if you walk in this room today, your head's going to be chopped off. There's no one at any point over the last year and a half that called me up from the government and said, you dare not share Jesus with people. Has it been easy? No. Are we greatly persecuted? (laughs) Not if you compare it to the rest of history. We are so, so blessed. So it was written during a time of persecution. Why? It was written to strengthen and encourage the followers of Christ. At the end of the day, there's going to be some difficult themes and some some difficult images, and it's going to be at times can be a little bit scary, the book of Revelation, but that's all to guide and direct you to a hope that you can have even in the midst of the most difficult trials and times and persecutions. It was meant to strengthen and encourage the followers of Christ. So in a nutshell, here's my words about the theme of Revelation. It's your first fill-in for today. Life is hard. Jesus has won. If you trust in him, you will too. Revelation is about as real as it gets. And it does not try to sugarcoat anything. It recognizes that life, especially as we get closer and closer to the last day, that no one knows when it'll be, is going to be hard. Have you felt that? But instead of just dwelling on the difficulty of life, Revelation redirects our minds and our hearts. It takes us on a journey of our emotions and says and reminds us that Jesus won. He slayed the dragon. And if you trust in him, you are victorious too. Now, If we don't remember this, if you don't almost daily come back to this message, you know what I found begins to fill the heart and mind? One of the most debilitating and difficult emotion there is. It's this one, fear. If we don't remember the end of the story, which you know, which we know, if we don't dwell on that, instead, what is going to dominate our hearts, whether in big ways or in little ways, is fear. And the weird thing about fear, it is always, always anticipatory. It means it's an emotion you feel because something could happen. And studies show that 90% of the things you worry or fear about don't. 
And yet we have people, maybe you are one of them, that spend most of your life anxious and fearful. The book of Revelation teaches us to live a different way. You've maybe seen this on a a T-shirt or a, a logo or on social media, but it's true. To live with faith over the fear. To live in faith and in trust and in truth over fear. And over the next six weeks, God is going to guide us in that direction. And it starts with some of the very first words in the letter, the first vision that John saw. And I'm going to use these words as a model for you to hopefully get you to understand, you know what, Revelation is hard, but it's not as hard as I might have thought. Revelation 1 verse 9 I, John, you know who that is, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patience endurance that are ours in Jesus, he's recognizing that the people he's writing to are suffering. He is too. You know why? Um, He was in exile on an island called Patmos. And as far as we know, he never got off the island. He died there as an old man in exile. He was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. There's no doubt why he was there. It's because he professed his faith in Jesus. Continue. On the Lord's day, reference to a Sunday. Before Easter, God's people they would celebrate or they would worship on Saturday, the Sabbath day. But after Easter, because Jesus rose on the first day of the week, Christian churches began to celebrate and to gather on the first day, the Lord's day, on Sunday. On a Sunday, I, John, was in the spirit. This isn't like a weird trance or anything like that. Most likely what it references is he was simply... In the word, he was prayerful, he was meditating, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, that angel that God sent, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. It was someone who looked like a human being. We're going to recognize later that it was, in fact, Jesus. He was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. So here's some first imagery there. The robe, but especially the golden sash, that, that color and what he was wearing definitely at that time would designate um, authority. This person was of authority as what he was wearing. Next verse. The hair on his head was white like wool. Why point out the color of the hair? Well, we talked about it earlier. White makes sense. Would represent holiness or purity. It was as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. What do you think of with fire, blazing fire? You might think of heat. Um, You also think of that, that powerful heat, power. 
And this would denote or represent that this person with his eyes of fire was able to see what other people don't. He had powerful vision, was able to see reality, see behind what other people see. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Your feet and your legs are foundational, aren't they? If you have a broken leg or foot or ankle, it's hard to stand. Feet and legs are foundational. Bronze is strong. This was a substantial person standing in power and in strength. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I bet you could figure this out, right? It's not that hard. Have you ever stood next to a waterfall? Depending on the waterfall, man, they can be powerful. This man's words, his voice was powerful. Next verse. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. For those of you who have some background in the Bible, the sword of the Spirit references, Paul does, the word of God. So out of his mouth is coming the very words of God, and his face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. You, You think of... Jesus being transfigured, or whenever God appeared to people, God would glow in brilliance because of the the holiness and the majesty. It talks about seven stars and seven lampstands. Let's skip ahead to verse 20. Here's what's written. Write, therefore, God, or the angel is telling John, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, some messengers who had received the word and share it with them. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this this figure is standing among seven lampstands. He's, He's with God's people. He's standing among his people. He has not left his people all alone. He's there. He's with them. And what was John's reaction? Let's go back to verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's filled with fear over this substantial, authoritative, strong person that he sees. Now, I want to back up for one second. If you didn't have me guiding you through those verses, and you weren't aware that you know, the blazing fire represents eyes that can see in, you know, what's really going on or that the, the hair being white as wool represents purity or holiness. Is Sigbert Becker right? Would you still have gotten the impression, even if you didn't know every detail, this must be a powerful thing that he saw. You see what I'm saying? You don't need to know every single detail to get the main point. John saw this figure, and it is powerful, and it is strong, and he falls as though dead. Then the man placed his right hand on me. If someone places their hand on you when you've fallen in fear, 
what does that mean? That open hand almost on your shoulder means I care for you. I love you. This strong figure also had kindness and grace as Jesus reached out his hand in the vision to his friend, John. And he said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Either the message of revelation will dominate our hearts or fear will. And over and over and over again in the Bible, probably one of the the commands that comes out the most, do not be afraid, do not fear. Yes, there will be trouble, but do not fear. Don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. I'm God. I am the living one, a reference to Jesus, the one who rose from the dead. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys. I'm the one through which people get out of hell, meaning that they don't have to go there in the first place. I'm the one who gives life to people. I hold the keys. I I lock up hell so that those who believe don't have to go there. That's who I am. And as John sees this vision, as he hears this strong, powerful vision of a man who says, don't be afraid, 2,000 years later, the message is the same. The encouragement is the same. Fill in number two. We can learn to let go of the wrong fear and embrace the right one. The wrong fear is being scared of the future, scared of the present, wondering in fear and anxiety, what's going to happen with my job or what's going to happen with my family or my kids? Concern's okay, but fear, we need to let go of that and instead embrace Redirect our minds, redirect our hearts to a fear and awe and respect of a God-man, of a Savior, of Jesus, who is more powerful than even the, the most powerful enemy, death and hell. And once again, I think this is important to understand, and as I, I bring this to a close and give you some application here, I think it's interesting that when you look at the drawings and paintings that people in 21st century America or 20th century America as well have of Jesus, they all tend to look pretty much the same. You have skinny Jesus, and he might have been skinny, with perfectly manicured hair. He must have gone to sports clips at least, you know, more than once a month with how that hair looks in those drawings. His beard, perfectly manicured. And he's always smiling, and he's got a place on his lap for kids. Come on up here. His robe perfectly pressed, not a stain on it. And there's some good things to think about when we see visions of Jesus like that or paintings or pictures. I mean, it helps us understand that God or Jesus is approachable, that he's filled with love and grace. But let me ask this. If you were in a fight for your life, would you want that guy standing with you? That drawing? That picture? It makes me think of being in Burnsville Center some years ago. It was, uh, I think, a Friday night. And we were near the the doors to leave. And the security guards were there. Security guards. They were 
I think 16 to 18 year old guys whose uniforms were like three times bigger than they were. And it made me think, wow, we are sure secure at this mall. (laughs) I don't know what they're gonna do if something happened. And Revelation doesn't just tell you that Jesus is powerful. It stirs the heart and moves the emotions. And it takes you on a journey to see the power of his eyes and the foundation with which he stands and his powerful word. And then he puts his hand on you today and then John in all that power and he says, you don't need to be afraid. You have the most powerful savior God with you and on your side, the one who conquered death and hell in your place and has keys that has locked you out of hell because of what he did for you on the cross. And so number three, Christ with you is more powerful than any enemy before you. Inflation, yep. COVID, yep. An unknown future, yes. Cancer, yes. Heart disease, yes. Death, yes, yes, yes. Christ with you is more powerful than any enemy before you. And instead of God just saying that, like he does in other parts of scripture, he leads us to feel the emotion of what John saw and shares with us to stir the emotions and to touch the heart to take home today, hopefully, an even fuller and vivid understanding of the power of your Savior. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and for preserving it. Today, we thank you for revelation. And I pray that over these next six weeks, you would continue to open up in our minds and our hearts what you want us to learn and take from it. And Lord, today, I just pray that in a world that's filled with people, filled with fear, that you would just redirect that. Help us to see in our mind's eye the grace of your son, Jesus, but also the power and the presence and the strength that he holds and that that Savior walks with us every single day. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.